everybody. It's Jessica with Simply Do It. I'm here with Danny, and tonight we're going to be talking about how to winterize your metro selection, which basically means uh, how to figure out which is the right place to choose your next uh, investment property. So I, before we get started, though, I want to talk about a couple of upcoming webinars that we have. We do have a guest webinar speaker coming up on the 30th. It's a Monday at 6 o'clock Pacific Standard, 9 o'clock Eastern. And they're going to be talking about how to choose a, a landlord management portfolio. Um, sorry right? Landlord management platform for your portfolio uh, and talk about, you know, all of the, the features that they offer and um, they'll be open to questions and it should be a, a night of good information. Following that, we're going to have um, a talk about EPP, which is basically an extra payment plan and show you how to use that to pay off your uh, mortgage faster and what are the benefits of doing something like that. So we're going to be setting up that webinar on February 9th, also at 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern. So I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Danny and we'll get started with the Metro selection. Perfect. Thank you, Jessica. Sure. And I just want to add that the uh, EPP uh, as much as it's relevant for investors, it's very much relevant for anybody with a mortgage, right? So if you have a mortgage, you may have, uh, you know, it's, I, I almost feel like when we're doing the EPP, not, we have not done it for a long time. It's almost like cheating because it's a very straightforward, simple method. Many people are not aware of it. And when we tell them, it's like, no, it can't be that simple, right? It can't be that. So it's kind of exciting. Uh, uh, Simple but yet exciting, in my opinion, right? I'll, I'll talk about. We'll talk about it more. Yeah, uh, I use it on my own house. Yep. Yeah. All right. Excellent. Good. Um, so, uh, good evening, everyone. Danny here. Thank you for joining us for another educational evening. Um, we are recording this session. We are gonna put it alongside other. Uh, webinars and educational sessions that we put together on YouTube and on our podcast. I'll talk about it towards the end. I'll show you the links. You're most welcome to subscribe, to join, to follow uh, whatever uh, you know, whatever you know, social media platform terminology you want to use. I just want to mention that we are always looking to put out valuable educational information out there for investors. That's kind of our, our motto. When we put those things together, uh, you'll see that uh, sales pitches are not really our thing. I'm trying to do better of it, but uh, I guess I'm not that good. Um, let me introduce myself. My name is Danny Baitor. Um, I live live currently these days for the past almost a decade in Southern California. I've been a real estate investor uh, since 2002. Started started investing in U.S. real estate. Um, as a young engineer from Tel Aviv, Israel, after getting my degree and spending three years in the Israeli Special Forces, um, I kind of built some courage, built some reserve, brought a partner, started investing. I was 26 at the time. Um, so that's why, how I got started with investing in U.S. real estate and actually got hooked for, uh, for that uh, concept or idea. Since 2004, when I moved to the States until now, um, I've helped others buy 
residential rentals in multiple U.S. metros. You're only seeing, uh, you know, maybe a big part of that list in which uh, states we're in. Uh, so over or since 2004 uh, until today, I have assisted others in buying something around 5,000 rental properties. Uh, you know, I lost count probably around uh, 3,200. You know, 3, I probably start losing, losing count. Uh, so 5,000, give or take. Those are all rental properties, long-term rental properties, primarily single-family homes, but duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes as well, um, and all done remotely. So very typical that our, you know, our clients or the investors that we closely work with live in one part of the country. A lot of it comes from, a lot of them are coming from the West Coast, all the way from Seattle to San Diego and anything in between. But other parts of the country as well, such as New York, we have a, a Bostonian on the line as well tonight. Uh, so uh, definitely other parts of the country as well, and from other other countries also. So that's kind of what we are all about and what the, my experience has been. And actually, part of my experience, and this is what I'm kind of tying it to today's webinar, is that part of my experience had been a survivor, a graduate, depending on how you look at it, of the 2008 crash, real estate crash, that some of you know very well. Some of you maybe heard about it. You know, it's definitely not being that long that we will forget about it or not hear about it. And that crash of 2008, I have been there, I should say, in the eye of the storm, you know, with, with my own portfolio, my own investments, my own decisions or uh, that led me to that point um, exposed very much so personally uh, in many ways, but also exposed being there alongside with my clients that are going through similar stuff that I was going through. So the crash of 2008 taught me a lot about real estate investing, taught me a lot about real estate altogether, really refined my decision-making, my process, my systems, how I analyze properties, everything. So for me, it was a, that's what I'm saying, a survivor, or I should call it a graduate. For me, it boosted my knowledge and my abilities and refined all my skills to be a better real estate investor, first of all. And anytime I do something real estate investing related, I always consider it, as leveraging you know, whatever I'm doing. So I know if there's something that works, I will talk about it, teach, you know, uh, uh, lead others in the same concept. So for me, it's always been a multiplier. Whatever I do, even if I just mentioned the EPP a minute ago, uh, that's definitely something that I spend a lot of time learning. Why? Because I knew it's gonna be pay, you know, pay off personally and others. So I have I've learned a lot I can't say that I really wanted to learn that much, but I had no choice. So the reality of the crash of 2008 brought me to point to where I learned a lot about uh, real estate investing. And I also learned about, uh, you know, how to improve the way I go about investing altogether. Um, just to show off, to show you just a little bit, uh, this is not all the properties that have been purchased throughout over the years. But this is something from probably the last, I don't know, five, six, seven years or so when we started tracking it more properly. So it's probably not a full, a full and complete list, but just shows you, you know, our activities over the years. Every blue dot that you're seeing 
pin represent the property owned by one of our clients or one of us. Just to kind of, it was just interesting. I was doing exercise about uh, something uh, related to our system and I wanted to see how that past activity integrates into that. To start off this uh, tonight, I wanna kind of, um, you know, Jessica found me this, this sentence that I thought it's really fitting. So, and it says, you can learn, you can learn to prevent a storm or you can learn to ride a storm. If you learn to ride a storm, the storm is not a problem anymore. And when Jessica sent it to me, I said, this is perfect. This is exactly what I would like to kind of set the tone for tonight, because for me, this quote really says, says, says it all, right? Instead of fighting the storm, instead of avoiding the storm, let's see if we can ride the storm and not be intimidated by the storm. And everything I'm gonna talk about tonight is how we should not be intimidated by a storm, but actually see, uh, you know, learn how we can not be intimidated by it, but work with it, okay? So like I said, if there's, one thing that I learned a lot is the financial crisis of 2008 who taught me a lot, but it's also taught me that I, there's definitely things that are not in my control. I cannot control, right? What the economy does, I cannot control that. I just need to be able to work with those things, right? So all those aspects that I'm gonna cover are the things that I have been over the years refining and considering how to make sure that the decision-making process of buying a single property, not to mention many properties, but the single property is very, you know, uh, uh, follows a very clear recipe, a very straight, you know, uh, trial and proven methodology. And the goal of it is how do I get to the point, how to get to the point that I am minimizing the risk or hedging against the storm. And when I say the storm, of course, we all know that we are already about six months into the slowdown period, which is kind of interesting to, to say uh, that we are into the slowdown period because it's not all slowing down everywhere. Actually, we, just the past two weeks, we have multiple houses offers that uh, offers out that encountered multiple offer situations, something that we are very much familiar with from the period up to mid 2002. It's still happening, by the way. Um, so it's kind of interesting to say here, here's the storm, but those things are still behaving this way. And we can definitely talk about the things I don't necessarily speak about during the presentation, during the Q&A, no problem. If you want to talk about the, the, those multiple offer situations and markets, et cetera, no problem. We can raise it up in the, in the Q&A. But what I want to say is when I, every time we make a decision about buying a rental property, in my mind, I look at a couple of things. First of all, and I will explain what the criteria of selecting is in a second, but I look at a couple of things. First of all, my starting point is how do I select a property or an investment or an area that has the best chances to weather the storm, right? To, to kind of, you know, not be as affected or dramatically affected when the downturn crisis storm happens, right? If it does. So that's one kind of starting point, which really it's something that I've learned or I have followed that core, I call it the core starting point since the crash of 2008, right? A lot of the decisions are in my mind, one of the top, if not the top things, 
is this decision, is this property, is this area, what are the chances of it surviving the next downturn? And I'm talking about, you know, making those determination how to go about it back in 2009, not last week and not last month and not before COVID, right? All the way down to 2009, that was one core starting point. You know, what are the chances of this, whatever that this investment is, to you know to survive the next downturn? Um, uh, so that's kind of a very important thing that follows me, guides me through the decision making process. And uh, Jessica and I, throughout almost on a daily basis, when we review properties, those things are definitely you know even today we ruled out a property that was borderline okay because it didn't meet those criteria. Now, the other thing I want to mention is when we make a decision about a rental property, we are probably going to make anywhere from, I don't know, 20 to 25, I want to say significant decisions. What I mean by significant, I don't mean they're critical decisions, all 25 of them. I don't mean they're insignificant one. Something with that every one of those decisions has an important impact on the overall decision-making, right? So let's assume... I am going to make 20, 25, let's just call it 25 decisions. Decisions is what to buy, where to buy, how much to pay, where, who I'm going to work with, et cetera, right? Those, those, all those, right, are important decisions. But what, the way I look at it is every one of those 25 decisions is like a footing of my overall investment, right? It supports my overall investment. Why am I saying this? Is because let's say I'm going to make an investment and I'm using all those 25 decisions about that investment and out of those 25 footings of you know of supporting that investment three of them you know what let's even say five of them fail and when i say fail i don't necessarily mean completely i didn't work out i'm just saying they're not materializing as we expected for example let's say one of those decision is you know determination is we estimate the rent to be two thousand dollars a month right but it ended be ended being 1700 right it's a huge gap in my world and it's not normally that we see that big of a gap i'm using you know on purpose but that means it didn't it's not a catastrophic situation if we went from 2000 to 1700 right it just shows you that one of those footing did not live up to the you know to what we we're thinking it somewhat failed right so that's just an example if we have five of those decisions out of 25 even seven of those decisions that kind of not succeeded as we expected. Did it appreciate as much? Did we have, uh, you know, less or more issues with tenants, right, along the along the, the few years? All of those medium importance decisions, if seven out of the 25 fail, there's still 18 that are supporting the decision-making, right? And remember, the seven did not necessarily catastrophically fail. They're just not living up to what we expected because we don't know everything, but we still have, 17, sorry, 18 other footings, decisions, in, you know, that are supporting the all over the uh, altogether the decision making process. So that's why the, I put a lot of importance to multiple decisions, but I also recognize that none of those decisions is insignificant and none of them is critical. Because if one of them is critical it, and that crashes or doesn't work out, obviously, um, uh, you know, the entire, you know, decision making process could fail. So let's talk about some of those decisions, not all of them, and I'm going to at least mention, you know, the, mention or go over the main ones, right? All right, 
metro size. We are fortunate to live in the US where we probably have something around 300, I don't know, 350, 325 to 75 major metros in this country, right? Um, what I've learned over the years, remember, one of the chances of an area to survive the next downturn is the size of the local economy. How, what is the one indication of the size of that local economy? It's the metro size by you know populations and when i say size i mean population so for example um kansas city three million people give or take right st louis three million people give or take metro not the city right nashville probably close to three million people give or take right dallas fort worth seven and a half eight million houston seven million right um, so I can go on with the list. I think you get you, you get the gist of it, right? So when we have in my world of decision making, I want to be in you know operating or active in a metro that it it's, it is at least a million people population wise, right? A million people is my threshold number. You know what? Most of the times I hit 1.5 and above, right? Right now we have one metro that is. Birmingham, Alabama, that it's uh, probably around a million, maybe a little bit more. All the other metros we're in are actually more than two, two and a half million people population-wise. So population-wise is your first indicator. Second indicator, what is the growth of population past and expected, right? So we want to be you know, on a pattern on in a metro that is showing potential or projected growth of you know, population and also show that, right? So let me give you an example that I really like to use because it's really, you know, kind of emphasize that. When I started operating, investing in the DFW, Dallas Fort Worth Metro back in 2004, I believe it was maybe four, four and a half, maybe 5 million people, you know, around that size, right? Already not a big, a small Metro at the time, Probably Austin was less than 1.5, probably 1.25, 1.5. I don't have those figures exactly, but maybe around that, right? In 2008 or nine, or maybe nine or 10, when we kind of uh, um, started doing more activity in the, in the Dallas Fort Worth area, I think we were already at 6 million people, something along that time. Um, and up until now, you know, it grew from probably six to seven and a half or eight million people, right? Now, a lot of people like Austin because it's cute and sexy and, you know, whatever, right? So a lot of people are moving there or whatever, right? And this is not about sexiness. I'm not making a decision based on, on cuteness. I'm making decision about, you know, stability, uh, a strength of a local economy, right? <clears throat> so if you really think about it, between, let's say, 2009 or maybe 2010 and 2015, DFW, Dallas Fort Worth grew but probably by at least the size of Austin, if not more. Okay. Austin obviously grew as well. I think Austin is now heading to 2.5, if I don't, if I if I'm not mistaken. But it's not that Austin did not grow, but just the, the, the size of the metro of DFW grew almost over a few years by the size of an entire Austin, right? Just to give you an, a kind of a, a, a more, a better explanation. So population growth, obviously it's important. 
um, to sustain our long-term buy and hold approach. Job growth, right? Very important, obviously very important. It's not always the case, right? So for example, Metro Nashville suffers and I'm air quoting and I'm joking, of course, with a lot of population growth, most of the people that are moving into Nashville are coming for a job that it's relocating them. Or a lot of the people are moving are coming for the, for following a job. They're not even just <clears throat> moving to Nashville and starting to look for a job. They're coming for that job that's waiting for them. So there's a lot of people that are coming to Nashville, not in, both by that are they're also showing the job growth, but also the population growth. So just another indicator. What is the job growth for this metro? And what is the, historically speaking, so you can see the, 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 the patterns, but also try to look into the future. A really important aspect is which are, who are the big employers in the metro and what industries are they representing? And let me give you two negative examples and uh, that in areas that I'm not very, Let's just say I'm not very, definitely not bullish, but not very excited. One is Vegas. Vegas has multiple big investor uh, employers, right? We all know all those giant entertainment, you know, uh, uh, um, hotels, um, etc. They are very big employers. No, no question about it. The problem I have with that with Vegas, they're all sitting on the same mega industry, entertainment, and we've seen in the past 12, 13 years. Vegas going suffering more than other parts of the country. COVID, Vegas really felt it um, during the COVID phase, right? And also the crash of 2008, definitely much more than other parts of the country, right? So for me, the indication of those mega, uh, all those employers coming from the <clears throat> from one industry affecting. Uh, the local economy, that for me is a scare, right? So it's something I'm not excited about. Another example, which is not as maybe as extreme as Vegas, <coughs> but Oklahoma City, which is not a bad market. And I've been active in Oklahoma for Oklahoma City for 10 years. My problem with, uh, I have a few problems with Oklahoma City, but one of those problems or, you know, challenges is that when the Oklahoma City, maybe uh, many do, are not aware of it, is really oil energy dependent, right? There's a lot of activity of oil and energy in Oklahoma City. And during the history, especially I think it was, uh, was it uh, 2000, 2017 when the, uh, when the um, price of oil crashed, I think it was 2017, dramatically crashed, Oklahoma City, employment suffered. People felt it, right? I mean, really felt it. So the local economy, was going through some times of uncertainty and people did get laid off. So that tells me, okay, Oklahoma City is not 100% dependent on oil and energy, but there's a strong presence of that, right? I have other issues with Oklahoma City and I'll be happy to uh, go into, if you are, if you're really curious in the q and I'm just using that as, a, uh, as, a, um, as an example. And I wanna say, if you invested in Oklahoma City, don't panic. It's not a bad market. It's all about making best decisions, right? <clears throat> it's not about, you know, and not just because I said I'm not excited about it makes it wrong. That's exactly not, that's not what I'm saying at all. And like I said, I have been active in Oklahoma City 
mainly between 2005 to probably 2015. So I've been there, you know, with properties as well. Um, moving on, landlord friendly laws, right? So what does that mean? It actually mean two things. If we get to an eviction, we want to be able <coughs> to go through the eviction process as quickly as possible and as inexpensively as possible, right? Some states, usually blue states around the country, are less friendly to landlords. And that means low, lengthier eviction process and more expensive, right? I live in one called California, right? So you know that that's a problem that can eat up a lot of the uh, a lot of the the cash flow of one year or more. So just be aware of that. There's one other aspect of eviction or, uh, or landlord friendly laws that I only kind of internalize or really, really, you know, I mean, I really got it maybe five, six, seven years ago. I think, and this is my interpretation, that tenants who live in a landlord-friendly state many times are aware of it. And they know they have more, let's just say, power position. And tenants who live in a, sorry, they say tenants who live in a tenant-friendly state have, sorry if I got, uh, if I uh, confuse you, tenants who live in states, in blue states, that are the laws are tenant-friendly, they many times are aware of it and they know they can give the owner some hard time, right? On the other hand, tenants who live in states that they know those are lender-friendly states would probably know, or many times they know this is not a good state for them to have to, you know, to give the landlord problems and they will try to not even run into that situation or avoid it altogether in eviction, that I mean. So I have, over the years, I've noticed that many times the tenants in the land, uh, no, the, the attitude of the tenants in a landlord-friendly state is as such that it's it already inherently gives me a little bit of protection, right? So I'm not even talking about eviction. I'm talking about what people perception of avoiding or not eviction to begin with. So it's a tiny, 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 or not at all uh, understanding but it means a lot, right? It already means that there's probably <clears throat> smaller chances we're gonna see evictions just because of the people's perception of the eviction process in those landlord friendly, you know, states, right? Just something to think about, you know, um, you know, to, you know, all together about dealing with tenants. And um, obviously purchase price, cash flow ratios I'm, I'm emphasizing purchase price cash flow ratio and what do i mean by that i used to say purchase price rent ratio okay now rent the problem is a lot of people and maybe some of you are already been through or heard the one percent rule and you know what if you don't mind um maybe answering in the can they chat if i ask something so if you are aware of the one percent rule if you don't mind putting in the chat, yes, I am. No, I'm not. Uh, that'll be terrific. That'll be kind of helping me a little bit. Um, opening the chat. So if you are aware and if you can put it in the chat, that'll be terrific. I'm just curious to know who is aware and who is not. Okay. 
First one is saying I'm not aware. Okay, there is a not aware, aware. Okay, I'm gonna still talk about it. Briefly. Kind of a mixed bag. Yes. So just so we all understand, there is a conception out there, and I I am blamed to be using it myself uh, up until probably seven or eight years ago. <clears throat> that it's called the one percent rule. What is the one percent rule? It means you want to get one percent per month in rent off the purchase price. Use simple numbers. You're buying a you know you're buying a hundred thousand dollar home. One percent mean a thousand bucks a month, right? That's the one percent rule. So that's a very common term that's been circulating. But there's some problems with the with the terms that I want you and I ask you not to use the one percent rule. I have used it and failed, right? Myself, not failed financially, but failed with decision, the smart decision making. The one percent rule or the rent purchase price ratio takes the income of the property, right? So if we have a thousand dollar, you know, <clears throat> rent, it's the income of the property. Obviously, it's not the rent. It's not the cash flow. Why? We're going to have expenses, repairs, and you know, and the property taxes, and insurance, and you know, and mortgage, etc. Right? All those expenses that we have. So obviously, the cash flow would be less. Whatever is left between the income, the rent, through all the expenses, that's my cash flow. The problem is that some states. Some of those expenses are higher than others. Let me give you a very simple example. If you're investing in Texas, and we do, but when you invest in Texas, property taxes and insurance are higher relatively to the purchase to the to the price of the property compared to many other states. Let's use it, an extreme example. Birmingham, Alabama is actually super low property taxes and insurance, right? So just on, on, on that spectrum. So for example, we can have a property that's costing us, you know, let's just say a, a $200,000 property in Birmingham, Alabama, and in, you know, and in Fort Worth, Texas, but, you know, one, the one in Fort Worth is rented for, let's just use $1,800, but my cash flow is, is 200 bucks. And the one for $200,000 in Birmingham, Alabama is rented for $1,600, $200 less. You know what? Maybe even $1,500, $300 less than Texas. But it's generating $250, $300 in cash flow. Why is that difference? Property taxes and insurance. Maybe some other costs, but those are the main two. Now, to add some additional pain to the situation. In Texas, they have a tendency, the counties do, to update the property taxes on an annual basis. That's not always the case with all the counties around the country. Right? There are many counties around the country that are updating the taxes every other year, every three years, etc. So Texas is very good with chasing the property taxes and updating the property taxes. So what am I trying to say? If you're looking at a property, or let's just say two properties, and you're looking at them at a the similar price range, and maybe they're coming from two different states, and you're just seeing which one is generating more rent, you are being um, um, superficial about it. 
you're going to maybe end up you know, hurting yourself, right? Just by using my example. And I'm sharing this with you because I have made the mistake of measuring a, you know, a metro such as Nashville, not such as Nashville, years back and not starting you know, activity, investing activity in Nashville as early as I looked into it just because the rent purchase price ratio was not where I wanted to be. It was not good. If I, a year earlier, when I started looking in Nashville, a year later when I started in, you know, kind of more thorough look at it, I would have just looked at the cash flow, not the rent, but the cash flow, I would have received a better understanding and would have started investing in Nashville, which is a great metro and done very well for our investors probably about a year earlier, right? So I missed a full year of activity for a simple term I call self-stupidity, right? So I'm suggesting that if you follow the 1% rule, you probably want to recalibrate. And better yet, what we do, we just plug it into our Excel and just look how the numbers work property by property, right? So we don't just guess or get a feel or, or a rule of thumb, right? A lot of people like to use rule of thumbs. I don't, right? Although I'm, I could probably, after uh, uh, analyzing 50, 60, 70,000 properties in my career, I could probably have a, a good feel for it. I still don't trust myself uh, to do that. We take the time and plug it into the, you know, into our Excel to get a better understanding of the cash flow, right? So be careful of the, of the rent purchase price ratio and focus on the cash flow purchase price ratio, okay? Um, so that's about the number. So we can go through all the process, the metro size check works, population growth check, job growth, employers, landlord friendly works, works, work, but the numbers, right? So let me give you an, another example. Phoenix, Arizona, great area. I started operating there. I love this area in many ways. It's an area I would love to come back and invest. The problem is the purchase price cash flow ratio is still not good compared to Nashville, Kansas City, Birmingham, and so on, right? Why am I not there? Because it's not that not good as good as the other ones. Is it a bad market? No. Is it comfortable for me to invest in Phoenix because it's closer to my house geographically than, than Kansas City? Absolutely, yes, right? Should I invest in an area because it's closer to my home? You know, it doesn't really matter. If I have to, to, to travel to Phoenix for whatever reason, and we can talk about traveling to see properties altogether, it's already gonna be a flight anyway. So it's not gonna be that, that, you know, that different anyway. So Phoenix is great. Is it better ratio? you know, then California, oh yeah, that's not hard to beat, right? But can I do better? Not a little bit better, much better. I think the answer is yes, right? It also depends what you're buying, of course. And if you're doing specific things, I get it. But I'm just saying, generally speaking, you know, thinking about the ratio and the cash flow ratio, it's first of all, to understand it, but also to understand how to measure it, but also compare it to other markets you may want to follow and invest you know closer to home backyard you may want to you you may end up compromising on that ratio aspect and that's okay if that's what works for you right that's not that's not wrong i'm just saying what are you looking for right if cash flow a strong cash flow is important 
you know, you may want to consider going remotely. Uh, sorry, depends where you live. If you are, you know, comfortable with the returns you're getting in your backyard, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with it. Okay, now the last point, I call it an important secondary. And, and maybe that's even part of what kind of initiated this, this webinar altogether. The content for this webinar is, is, is the weather. Let me, let me tell you what I think about weather aspect from experience. <clears throat> I strongly dislike investing in areas and metros that, that do suffer harsh winters, right? Even if they're not as north as Buffalo, New York, right? Even if they're just, I don't know, Hudson, New York, whatever. And why am I saying this? All right, so if I am here in California and the entire US is available to me as an investment map, and I'm going through all those criteria and I can definitely find metros in the, <clears throat> in the north that are fitting almost all those criteria, maybe not the landlord friendly aspect. On the top of everything, if I go through a rush, sorry, harsh winter area, here is what happens many times. Number one, even when the house is vacant in December, knock on wood, I have one in one of those markets. <clears throat> if the house is vacant through December and the heater is vacant and the heater fails, it could be a major issue with the, with the, with the burst of pipes, right? Now, I have a house right now in that, in that weather, and I, know I make sure someone checks it every week at least, it's vacant. But guess what? I also paid for someone to go and winterize the house and, and you know, clear the pipes. But there's always part of me saying, did they really go through and clear all the pipes from water, right? I don't know. I don't know. I would never know, right? So that's always a scare. So, so multiple things needs to fail in order for this to happen, but it could, right? So they didn't clear, the, didn't winterize the house properly. That's one. And the uh, heater fails and that's two. And the winter is harsh, that's three, right? But those are chances. Now, even if I have insurance, I'm still going to be dealing with the pain of that situation, right? Even if the insurance pays for some of it or all of it. So just to, to let you know, reason number one, in the winter, house vacant, it's already a, a stronger recipe for issues. It's one. Number two, and maybe more important, people do not want to go out and look at houses for rents or for sale during the winter, right? The harsh winter, you know, that's the reality, right? Now, my house in Tampa during the winter, not a problem, right? So there's no risk from the, from the freeze, you know, it could happen, but you know, uh, and there's people are going out and seeing the houses, even if it's a, it's a cold day, right? I spoke to someone from Tampa uh, last week and he said, you know, it's been 40 degrees today. And like, what? 40 degrees in Tampa? That's never happened. But, you know, it so happens. So that's a rare event. So people have less issues renting and selling houses during the winter. Why am I saying it? Well, what happens if you end up with a vacant house or that you're trying to sell or rent in the winter? So it's the, also there's also the risk of the freeze. And also people are less active with activities with 
around uh, around uh, um, selling and and leasing. So that's just now. Do I really need to go to a cold market, freezing market, where they have all those warmer around the country? Well, that's my my kind of my philosophy is why would I want to go there when I have plenty of other metros around the country that are not going? I'm not against winter, right? I'm just specifically using the harsh winters. Right? We operate in Kansas City, St. Louis, and Nashville. They get snow, but they get a little bit of snow, and they get not accumulated, and it's not you know it's not kind of stopping every everything you know every winter for for you know a few days at a time, right? So it's the the, the significance, the impact of that weather is not felt as much as the north more northern st uh, uh, states or metros. And by the way. Most of the northern states are blue states, and the laws are also tenant friendly. So it so happened it worked so well, right? So just to give you all those pointers uh, about making a decision and determination where to invest, assuming you are looking to invest, invest remotely, right, or locally, but also you know primarily remotely. Um, with that said, I want to start taking questions. Obviously, there are more factors, but those are the main ones. You guys, this is my recipe. I just share with you what I, how we go about it, right? There's no, I don't have, I have other factors. I maybe dive deeper into all those, but I just share with you, this is what I do, right? Part of what we do is I follow this recipe when I'm selecting an area to investing. So it's not like I have my own secret sauce and I'm sharing this with you. This is the secret sauce. Please do not share it with anyone. Fair, fair to ask, Jessica? Uh, sure. All yeah. right. So uh, I believe Paige has her hand raised. Um, Before we sure take questions, can I, can I make one, one or two uh, quick announcements? Sure. All right. If you like content about real estate investing, there's a great YouTube channel. It's one of my favorites, right? Tons of content, a lot of educational stuff, a lot of, you know, like sharing truly from experience, from the trenches. You got the, you know, you got the the, the link at the, at the top of the slide. You're most welcome to subscribe, to consume. We we do not upload on a daily basis. I'm not I'm not what you know, Mr. Beast, and we're not, you know, uh, uh, doing it necessarily in the certain. But we just put stuff all, you know, on there. So when you subscribe, you get an uh, obviously a notification, and uh, you consume, and you can see the style, right? I think the style of of me speaking is. You know, uh, in those videos is like tonight, sharing, teaching, telling. Uh, also, same thing with my podcast. Um, also, I think we have, I don't know, 150. I'm just, I picked the random page. Uh, we have 150, maybe close to, I don't know, maybe 150 episodes by now, not 58. Um, again, content, knowledge, sharing, explaining. Uh, you're most welcome to, to benefit from it. If you're someone here who speaks Hebrew and they want to consume in Hebrew as well, let us know. We have a secondary podcast in Hebrew as well. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, here's our general email. Um, here's our website. Here is the second website. Simply do it.net is our website, reistar.com is the website we use for the properties that we are um, that we are uh, um, considering. So you can definitely get a sense or a feel of what kind of properties we are looking at, the actual ones 
on reistart.com. We'll take um, we'll take questions in a second. And lastly, uh, if you want to meet with us, you're most welcome. I think there's at least one or two, maybe three people that I recognize the names that already met with us. We hold what we call the strategy session. It's one-on-one, -on -one, Zoom, phone, in-person, no sales pitch, no boot camps. It's all about taking the knowledge and bringing out to a conversation, a, you know, a more, a more intimate conversation with you to kind of see if this is a good fit for you, for us, if we can work together, should work together, what is your... You know, what are your concerns and questions and clarification and challenges? I've learned that, uh, uh, you know, there's always something going on and it's really good to kind of talk it through with someone and see how to overcome obstacles or how to get started all together. So if you're most welcome, there's no cost to it. There's no, con you know, convincing about anything, just a conversation, usually 30 to 40 minutes with either Jessica or myself, right? So you're most welcome to sign up and uh, jump on a call with us and we can take it from there and see. Maybe we, may, maybe we can help you with investing. All right, webinars coming up. Um, Zebo is about a, a, a landlord management platform, um, you know, that, that benefit for investors, owners, and then the EPP, the extra principal payment method, that we're gonna talk about and teach you simple tool that you can benefit from when owning real estate with mortgages. I think that puts us on questions. Let's yep. do that. And we've got, a, we've got a couple of them in the chat. So okay. um, first question is, how do you get your listings? Are, you, are they all on MLS or exclusive to us? Perfect. Um, I would say most MLS, most of the listings are coming from the MLS. Uh, that's the majority of what we harvest. Um, other than that, we just by being out there and working and connecting and networking and building relationship with others, many times we get off-market properties. That's one. Um, we're very picky about off-market. I don't like. We don't normally work with wholesalers and and run down tra problematic properties, but absolutely off-market does work uh, if the property works. Many times our property managers, because with the property management companies that we work with around the country, Simply Do It is their biggest account. And when another owner outside Simply Do It, that is the owner of the, or as a client of the property management company, wants to sell a, a house, typically they will run it by us first. So we get those off-market rented properties. And I love those. When we get those, it usually means, you know, we don't know the seller, but the, our property manager knows the, the tenant, knows the property, knows the problem. So we have a lot more transparency to the property than any other situation. So that's great to be in. So we get those, uh, the, the, you know, typical off market. And then lastly, what we do every once in a while, if we find something that makes sense, is what I call the, uh, the bulk purchase. And when I say the bulk purchase, I do mean bulk properties, but not necessarily, uh, you know, um, a buyer has to, one of our buyers have to buy a bulk of properties. For example, let's just say we have four single family homes, six single family homes coming from one, from one seller. And the seller wants to unload it, which is very common with those sellers, pretty much all at once. 
we come in and we, we because we have a buying group, you guys or our, our active investors, we let our database of investors know, hey, there's a group, you know, a bulk of properties here. You can buy one, two or six, right? Whatever makes sense to you. And then we kind of pick and choose and each one, you know, chooses their own. And then we go to the seller and say, hey, you got six, you know, houses. We want to buy all six. Here is how we're going to do it. One buyer is buying two, another one is buying two, and then uh, uh, two more are buying each, buying one. So six buyers, sorry, three buyers, oh, so four buyers buying six properties in one. We still make it a bulk purchase, but we kind of slice it between, between our clients. And that has been very significant for us because going out there and just, you know, buying, you know, bulk of, you know, six you know, uh, rental properties, if they make sense, and let's say they cost, I don't know, two and a half million dollars, a lot of buyers are not in the position to buy all six. They will buy one, they'll buy two. You know, we do have sometimes those who will buy all six. It did happen, but that's not common. But as a group, the power of a group to become to come in and say, okay, I want this, I want two, I want three, or whatever, that's very beneficial. So we pull our buying resource together and still go after the bulks. And then I call it, I call them degrouping them, right? So we pick and choose, and then we go in as a group. By the way, when you come in as a group and to buy all everything offered to sell, many times it gives you the buying power ability to come to the seller and say, hey, you're asking two and a half million. We're gonna we're willing to offer 2.2 on everything, right? It may be not you know different prices per unit or per house. But maybe we'll get a $200,000, $300,000 discount on the bulk because we are buying at the same time. We may not, but who knows? But it's definitely something that we are doing as well. We actually have one of those uh, in the works as we speak. Mm -hmm. And I'd also like to add to, to the end of that question that uh, the relationships that we have with our uh, agents, like our boots on the ground, like they're well known in the metros that we're in to be working with us. So a lot of times uh, builders will come to the, the agents that represent our Simply Do It clients and offer um, different discounts or deals because they know that, you know, our clients are well qualified and that they're looking to, you know, sell off, um, you know, maybe do a rent back on a a model home or something like that. So we do get a lot of perks from the relationships that we have in the particular metros that we're in because we've been there for as long as we've been there and we've done as many deals as we have. So that that's another way that we. It's a great point. That we and I think the reputation in the local market is not the simply do it reputation per se, because maybe the seller doesn't know us, but through the boots on the ground, they know that, this agent who has this group from California, they close. And people want to work with people who close. We have many times uh, a, a, a seller's agent told us they are picking us because they've worked with us in the past or they are heard that our buyers are actually closing and are not, you know, kind of uh, wasting anybody's time. You know, rep investors many times have bad reputation, right? Not closing and doing different tricks. We just try to not do those tricks and be very upfront with the transaction from, from, from day one. And that translates into those situations exactly like Jessica described. Uh, okay, 
next question. Uh, someone wants to know why, uh, what do you think about the Denver Metro and why we don't invest there? Is it because of the weather and that they have 3 million people? Ah, okay, 3 million people, not a problem at all. Weather, eh, I wouldn't qualify it as harsh, but it's definitely on the colder front, so to speak. Uh, the reality is I love Denver. And for me, Denver, the biggest challenge is the numbers. Just the, the what I call the, again, we're talking about Denver. We're talking about the metro. There's different parts of that metro. <clears throat> you got to also remember, I, I don't know your name besides iPhone. It shows only as iPhone. Right. Um, but the type of properties we like are what I call the upper middle class, middle middle class, lower middle class, right? In that segment in Denver, the cash flow price ratio is not good enough compared to other metros, right? So if Denver uh, maybe continues to go down or, you know, or will go down, I'm not saying it's already, that ratio gets better. Um, we can resume operating in Denver, which I would love to do, except it, it's all about, it's not that the numbers are horrific, they're just not, they're, good enough compared to the alternative. What is the alternative? Other metros metros around the country. So simple answer is Denver works. More complicated or more thorough answer is that it's the, the cash flow compared to the price that is a challenge. It's a little bit, it's similar to what I said earlier about Phoenix, Arizona. Okay. And uh, Vera wants to know how many listings are currently in our database? Say again. She List wants to know how many listings are currently in the database. Oh, so first. No, it it, it changes all the years, time. First time I get asked about that. Um, <laughs> hey, you know, um, yeah, Jessica, how many properties have we sent out this week? I don't even Possibly. know. Hmm? Uh, to I don't even know to be honest because not only do I send properties, but we have individual agents that send them separately. Yeah. So. so I would assume you got to remember we are filtering a lot of properties, so we're not sending just properties, right? Everything goes through, goes through um, in, uh, evaluation and analysis, and it, it, is it a good fit, you know, to the criteria that you know that the property criteria. And does it, is it a good fit financially? So there's a lot of properties, you know, just Jessica and I probably killed at least two today and yesterday, right? If I remember correctly. Yeah. I'd uh, say probably you... 10 to 20 listings went out this week. Yeah, right? probably something like that. At least, yeah, yeah that made days. the cut. Yeah, that made and the cut. Many that right. didn't. Yep. Yeah. Uh, we even have one that did make the cut at first and then we took another look at it and we decided that it's... Uh, yeah. Forget about that one. Cut after all, yeah. right? So it's it, to begin with, it was okay. And then a deeper look, we're like, okay, you know what? No. So actually we had someone who wanted to buy it and I told him, no. I mean, yeah. uh, your, his decision, but I told him I'm not supporting. After an, a, 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 another look, I'm not, I don't think, it wasn't a bad deal. I feel, I felt that just the location is not as good as where it wanted to be. It could work. There's no... This was not a bad deal that did not make the cut. It was just not good enough for me, for this person, because I know his challenges. 
Yeah. And the properties, uh, you know, some are pending, some are in contract, some are contingent, some come back on the market. It's it's a constant flux of numbers. It's an impossible question to answer yeah. solidly. It's very, yeah. uh, very dynamic on a daily basis. Absolutely. Yeah. So is there anything else? Um, I've gone ahead and um, allowed you guys to unmute yourselves. If you had any questions on your own, um, you're free to do that. We love talking to you and seeing your faces. All right. It looks like uh, all of our questions have been answered. Perfect. You guys, thank you very much for uh, sticking around. I know there's a, at least one person that I know is already 10 p.m., probably super tired on the Thursday. So thank you for those of you from the East Coast and Central that are kept here, you know, stayed. And uh, obviously, we'll be very happy to hear from you um, and uh, maybe get going, get started, resume working together, whatever the situation is. Pleasure. Thank you, Jessica, for uh, putting it together. You're welcome. And I look forward to seeing everybody on our next you know, upcoming webinars. We hope to see your faces then too. And of course, as always, uh, we're going to be providing a link to the recording of this. So if you want to go back and refresh, or if you have any questions, reach out to us. Um, everything, we're always available. All right. Have a good night. Thanks so much, Bye -bye. everyone. Have a good night. Bye.